0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in partnership with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. The East India Company was a unique entity in world history. More than just a commercial enterprise, the company tried to act as its own government, Not many at the time, whether legislators or company officials in London, and certainly not those in India, thought this was a great idea. As Joshua Ehrlich notes in his book, The East India Company and the Politics of Knowledge, the company hit upon a novel justification for its work. It was committed to the pursuit of knowledge, and that was why it needed to merge commercial and political power. Josh is an award-winning historian of knowledge and political thought with a focus on the East India Company British Empire in South and Southeast Asia. Currently, his professor of history at the University of Macau. He received his PhD and MA from Harvard University and his BA from the University of Chicago. His many articles appear in journals, including past and present, The historical journal, modern Asian studies, and modern intellectual history. Today, Josh and I talk about the East India Company, how it tried to make knowledge part of its responsibility, and how the politics of knowledge are still relevant today. So, Josh, thank you for coming on the show today to talk about the East India Company and the politics of knowledge. Um, and there's a reason I kind of started by by naming the book's title because I did want to ask about this idea, the the politics of knowledge. Um, what what exactly do you mean by by that idea? Well,
1: thanks so much for having me, Nicholas. Um, I'll jump right in. The politics of knowledge has become a sort of catchphrase, and it's used in various different ways. And I'm using it with the uh, sense that I want to contribute to that discussion around exactly how knowledge can be used for political purposes, how knowledge is political. We think of knowledge as being pure and free from the uh, contamination of politics, at least this is a more traditional view. Since Foucault and many thinkers in the 20th century, we might be more skeptical of such claims. And yet um, it's striking to me and was striking to me when I said about writing this book that while we have phrases like knowledge is power and we have a sense that knowledge and power may somehow be related, um, the field of political thought, the history of political thought has not dealt much with knowledge as an analytical category. And meanwhile, the new history of knowledge, another direction in the field of history has not dealt much with political thought, with ideas about knowledge. And so while there's this burgeoning literature, I think I can say that now, burgeoning literature on the politics of knowledge and how uh, you know knowledge may be political, we don't really have a sense of history of thinking about the politics of knowledge, both because of the limitations of the history of knowledge and those of the history of political thought. So what I want to do in this book is, first of all, deal with political ideas about knowledge used and marshaled and developed and articulated by the East India Company and its interlocutors on the one hand, and on the other hand, develop an approach that can be used in other historical contexts for thinking about those those political ideas about knowledge. I, I think indeed that we're not the only ones now in the 21st or late 20th centuries who have been articulate on this subject, who are able to conceptualize knowledge as a political tool or as having a politics to it. I think many historical actors have been highly articulate on this subject as well. And um, to the extent that we have not looked at their own understandings of the politics of knowledge, looked at their own ideas about knowledge and how they were used in politics, uh, our own conversation now is going to be impoverished. And so that's really what I want to do in this book beyond um, delve into the world of political thinking about knowledge that the company was part of i also want to say that there's a long and and rich history of thinking about the politics of knowledge that our own present conversations would benefit from uncovering
0: maybe i'll ask about kind of the the then the first half of your of your book's title which is the the east india company um and maybe you could before we start diving into kind of how the East India Company um, tries to use knowledge for its own purposes, how the people in charge of it, trace it for their own purposes. Maybe you can just kind, of, kind of set the historical scene for us. Um, you know, what's the period of time you're talking about and what power did the East India Company have in India during this period? Well, I talk about a
1: phase in the company's existence towards the late 18th century and into the mid 19th century. So the last Uh, three quarters of a century of its existence. It was founded in 1600. Its Royal Charter dates back to that year, but it transformed dramatically in the next two and a half centuries until it was finally wound up in 1857, 58. So by the later 18th century, this was really not just a mercantile outfit, According to recent scholars, it was never simply a trader. It had always managed certain functions, um, administering law and making law for its uh, officials and people who lived at its trading posts, managing complex things like minting coinage. It had a lot of uh, rights and privileges that we might now associate with a state. So from its very beginning, it had these um, rights as a, a sovereign as well as a merchant. These mattered a lot more, however, from the middle to late 18th century when it started dramatically expanding its territorial footprint. So for a while, its operations had been limited to small um, coastal trading enclaves, basically trading posts where it would uh, assemble and send out goods for trade. But by this later period, it was also ruling territory. It was ruling over a population of tens and eventually over a hundred million Indian subjects and also uh, subjects in East and Southeast Asia on a smaller scale. It was collecting revenue from, um, from agricultural activities from the land across these territories. It was waging war, raising large armies. It was engaged in all kinds of activities that, uh, drew upon it political criticism, both in South Asia, the heart of its operations in Asia by this point, and back in Britain. Critics, commentators on both sides of its operations argued that a merchant could not be a sovereign, that it was ill-equipped, it was uh, ill-suited to taking on all of these responsibilities of government, and that it needed to be dramatically curtailed. It needed to be, if not... Having is uh, you know if not have its charter revoked, it had to be um, dramatically reformed, and so you get a wave of criticism in Britain made by luminaries of the Enlightenment like Adam Smith and uh, Edmund Burke, and you also get critics in India arguing that this is not a good ruler; it's not doing the things that that Mughal rulers in the past had done, for instance. So be, due to this criticism, the company I argue has to find a means of legitimating its continued commercial and political power. This union of commercial and political power and rights is under threat as never before in this later period. And it needs political languages, political ideas to
0: legitimize itself. And that's where it turns to knowledge. Well, then let's let's talk about knowledge then. Um... So, you know, why do the people in charge of the East India Company, at least in India, care about knowledge so much? How did that help their and the East India Company's goals? Knowledge
1: had always been a part of the East India Company's activities since its very origins. Um, you can think about, for instance, the need to understand the currents, to have well-mapped routes, to understand certain languages that they needed to engage with rulers and with Um, trading partners in Asia. So there were always ways that the company needed to know languages, needed to have a kind of grasp of the science of navigation and of astronomy. So knowledge was always part of its activities for practical reasons. And we can also find evidence from the 17th and early 18th centuries of the company making, um, making some hay out of its knowledge patronage, its scholarly patronage you know, burnishing its image with this fact that it was patronizing an official historian and an official hydrographer and, and employees like that. And this points us to the fact that knowledge was a, a sort of public good that the company could lay claim to. It could say that it was not only in business for itself and for its shareholders, but also for a larger public back in Britain. This becomes much more important, however, when the company is under this incredible strain from the late 18th century, and at the same time when it has access to a much greater variety of uh, of, of scholarly collaborators in India, of land to survey and gather specimens from. When it's established as a much bigger operation in India, It has access to more knowledge, and it's also under greater strain in this period and needs to stress even more all the public good that it's contributing to, that it's providing. And this is where knowledge comes in. So the East India Company's first governor general of Bengal, who's supposed to assert its power in a newly direct way in this large province in East India, which the company has conquered and uh, really made its foothold for further expansion This Governor General, Warren Hastings, is the one who articulates what he calls a system of conciliation. This is a way that he's going to use knowledge to buttress this embattled company. He says that by patronizing European scholar officials and the company's employ, and Indian scholarly elites that it has access to, he's going to pacify, he's going to win over political classes both in Britain, who are often connected with these scholar officials and interested in what they're publishing, interested in the knowledge they're sending back, and political classes in India, who are similarly connected with these Indian scholarly elites, largely pundits, Hindu-learned elites, and Malvis, uh, Muslim-learned elites. So Hastings says that All of his scholarly patronage, which ranges from building a madrasa to sending expeditions to Bhutan and Tibet, to compiling Indian laws, all of this has a political purpose. Its purpose is to conciliate these political classes in Britain and in India. Conciliate is an interesting term. It's an interesting concept. It is rooted in both British and Indian political thought, so we can find that People like Edmund Burke are using this term to talk about how to manage a large political community. Burke famously uses it in the context of a speech on these restive American colonies that are at the verge when he's making the speech of going to war and breaking away from Britain. He talks about the need to barter, truck, and huckster to deal in a commercial way with these colonies. Um, Even a great despotic government, uh, a grand empire, he argues in parliament, needs to act kind of like a merchant. So conciliation in this use by Burke is a kind of commercial mode of politics. At the same time, it has a double definition. It's something that a king can do. It's something that a great ruler can do, winning over subjects, condescending to them and bringing them on board. And so this very term mixes the two Functions of, or at least blurs the two functions of sovereign and merchant, something that's very appropriate for a company state, for the East India Company, which is both a sovereign and a merchant. So it's rooted in both British and Indian political thought. I didn't mention the Indian side of the equation, but there's a concept that comes from Persian called Sulikul, which was famously deployed by Mughal rulers and often translated in this time as conciliation. So there's a South Asian and Indian side uh, to the the lineage here for this concept. And it also, conciliation does, blurs the roles of merchant and sovereign, it combines them and thus all the more supports the company state, the very thing that is so much needed at this time of, of great pressure and criticism on the company. And so Hastings marshals these ideas about patronizing scholars into what he calls a system of conciliation. He has such success with this, um, spreading this idea and enacting it, that it remains influential in company politics for much of the next 60 years. This is really the astonishing thing is that this has a long afterlife, even after Hastings returns to Britain in 1785.
0: So, I mean, so that's kind of the level at the top. Then, does this view get institutionalized in in the company? I mean, how how are kind of lower level staff, uh, so like not not necessarily the guys in charge. How how do they start um, kind of trying to 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 gather this knowledge to kind of to kind of to kind of work towards these objectives? Well, indeed, a lot of the book takes place at
1: this level of middle administration of European scholar officials collaborating with Indian learned elites, um, making use of the opportunities granted by this political need the company has to be patronizing scholars. And you can see them doing a whole range of things in the book. It's, It's one thing that surprises some readers and people I've talked to about the book is just how wide these knowledge activities are. So we have people like the young Scottish envoy, George Bogle, being deputed on this survey of Bhutan and Tibet, collecting everything from botanical specimens to descriptions of the landscape, being asked to record observations on the manners and customs of the people he encounters. Just this incredibly Catholic, wide-ranging survey that he's being asked to undertake in which he does with... um, a whole group of local collaborators. That's one example. Others would involve things like the Calcutta Madrasa, which Hastings sets up, and the Benares Sanskrit College, which he starts to set up and it's completed by his successor. These are institutions that are um, educational in their purpose, but really are, are largely set up to patronize a set of learned elites who are going to act as the professors and heads of these institutions. So we have educational institutions, we have surveys. We also have a third example I've mentioned already, the compiling of Hindu and Islamic laws. And this brings in a whole range of um, legal scholars among pundits and Malvis who are called in to translate and interpret laws that can then be enacted. So we can see that these knowledge gathering and collecting and disseminating activities go hand in hand with various other aspects of the company's administration, overseeing the legal system, conducting diplomacy as with Bhutan and Tibet, uh, mapping the lands that it's going to rule and collect revenue from. So the everyday business of the company in India and beyond India, the story isn't just about India, is really intersecting with this ideology that forms around the patronage of scholarship and while I'm focused here on the ideas and how they shift I also pay attention to how the ideas shape action on the ground and and are reinforced or changed by action on the ground that's part of the story here too it's not purely in the clouds
0: well it seems like there, I mean there's you devote part of your book to um, to the College of Fort William which seems to be, so it definitely seems to be, I think, a source of controversy within the company, uh, I mean, kind of globally, both between India and, and I guess um, back in London. Um, but what exactly was the College of Fort William and why did it kind of spark this, this, this internal debate about what it was for? The College of Fort William is this incredibly ambitious project
1: started by one of Hastings' successors, Governor General Richard Wellesley. Wellesley, unlike Hastings, is very much an opponent of the company, an enemy within. He is opposed to the idea that the company should still be both a merchant and a sovereign. He, he, like many commentators at the time, finds it ridiculous. He sets himself up as a kind of local monarch who's going to instill a new, much more expansionist, we could even say imperialist, vision for the company. And the College of Fort William is one of his greatest vehicles for this new vision of the company's empire in India. It is uh, intended to be on a lavish scale. He at first envisions this huge complex of buildings that's going to cost the earth to build. Eventually, this gets scaled down by the directors who who understand that this is uh, supporting his own his own view of himself uh, and his view of kingly territorial sovereignty overtaking the commercial sovereignty of the company. But even things like the curriculum of the college, which goes well beyond commercial knowledge and and includes basically a, a very liberal education and all the things that young civil servants should know to govern a territorial empire. This is seen as a threat. The lavish disputations each year where the students display their knowledge in front of an audience that includes Governor General Wellesley sitting on a big throne, um, attendants fanning him, masses of people, um, Indian, European, and uh, from other parts of the world, ranging from Baghdad to the Malay states, they're in attendance too. And all of this ostentation is seen, I think very rightly by the directors as a challenge to their own model of sovereignty and to their own authority. An important aspect here, too, is that Wellesley wants to take away the director's power of of patronage in the sense of assigning new civil servants to their appointments in different departments, different locations in India. He wants to assume that for himself and base those decisions supposedly on their accomplishments in college. So if they do well, they'll get a good position, and he will be the judge of that. This is seen rightly by the directors as seriously undermining their own authority and their own um, responsibilities, which are really bound up in this power they have to determine where their employees will be uh, sent off to. This connects them to operations around this empire that they're amassing. Wellesley proposes to take that responsibility for himself. So at a practical level here too, the college really is a serious threat to the directors and As soon as they realize this, um, the college is founded in 1800. Within a year or two, the directors have have come to grips with this threat and try to take the college down, founding one of their own, a kind of replacement institution in England, in Hertfordshire, and doing everything they can to cut back Wellesley's very threatening institution in Calcutta.
0: So it it does seem like there are these kind of tensions and, and these debates between, um, I guess you can call them the, the guys on the ground in, in India um, versus the officials back, back in London. I mean, what, what exactly was the, what, what kind of motivated these, these, these debates um, back and forth? It does seem like the guys in London are always complaining about what the guys in India are doing. Um, but, but, but kind of where, where did this tension come from?
1: I think it helps to look at the company less as a coherent, unitary outfit and more as a loose collection of different institutions and individuals with competing aims oftentimes. And one of the most enduring frictions, as you suggest, was between the court of directors, ostensibly the real power holders in the company back in London at their headquarters in East India House at Leadenhall Street And their delegates, their representatives on the ground in India and and more broadly around Asia. And this was a difficult relationship to manage because partly uh, due to the communications being so slow, it would take six months sometimes for a message to be transmitted in one direction. And then you imagine a certain amount of deliberation and a message being sent back, leading to up to a year perhaps for... uh, one round of communications to be completed. Um, In the meantime, events change on the ground, decisions have to be made, and only a kind of loose control can really be exerted by the directors in London. These directors tended to be against territorial expansion. They were very wary of embroiling the company in conflicts that might be incredibly expensive to to carry out and would deplete the company's finances. They were trade-minded still. They often had roots in trade, even in this later period when the company was expanding territorially. They were often much more commercially minded and less interested in territorial expansion. The situation was something of the reverse on the ground in India. Often those governors and governors general seeking glory were military men, were interested in expansion, were... uh, seeing their greatest chance for private profit as well, not in a kind of peaceful trade, but in an aggressive expansion into new markets, um, seeking plunder, seeking honors, seeking all kinds of sources of emolument that the directors back in London largely disapproved of. And so you get a tension between these two sides, um, but that's only one of many tensions within the company, which was riven by various different ideologies. You had evangelical members, you had utilitarians, You had um, romantics. You had a whole variety of different uh, belief systems shaping the actions of individuals and groups within the company. Different schools of thought emerged over Indian governance. So you had different bases around India, Bombay, Madras, and Calcutta. And in each one, groups of officials developed their own ideas about how to govern and and tended to dislike or at least um, be suspicious of those being developed in other parts of India. There were petty rivalries and there were great disagreements over principle. And, and all of these shaped the, the complexity of the company's politics. It was never a unitary um, outfit. It was really more of a loose network of, of different institutions and individuals. There was not an overriding esprit de corps that bound everybody up in the same direction and pushed everyone forward in the same way way. And so I think that's crucial to understanding company politics in general, but it certainly affects these debates around knowledge, like the debate over the College of Fort William. And another good example are the education debates that really reached their height in the 1820s and 30s. All kinds of different ideas are proposed over what role, if any, the company should take in education in India and um, beyond. You also get uh, raffles in Singapore, making a contribution to this debate. And here you see, uh, an enormous amount of ink spilled on the subject and no clear answer about what the company should be doing, if anything, in this uh, area of knowledge.
0: So I want to, I want to kind of end by, by jumping to, jumping to the, to the present day. Um, and in your book, and kind of both in your introduction and your, and, your, and your conclusions, you draw some modern parallels um, with how the East India Company thought about knowledge, focused on knowledge, and the way that companies today, I mean, obviously, they're very different, they're constituted very differently, knowledge means something else today. But 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 you do see some parallels between um, what the East India Company did and what companies do today. How do you see that history, the history of the East India Company, how do you see that history being relevant today?
1: Well, you're right to mention some caveats here. We don't have anything exactly like the company state today, this form of um, blended sovereign and commercial power. Corporations today are a bit different, but we do have a situation, I think, today of Uh, blurred lines between the respective roles of states and corporations. We do have a situation where business corporations are encroaching on many of the domains long claimed by the state. And I think actually the greatest area of such encroachment is knowledge. If you look at education at different levels, if you look at academic publishing and scientific publishing, if you look at scientific research and medical research, these are all areas where we see for-profit companies taking a large role and um, shaking up what had seemed to be the role of states. These seemed to be um, knowledge domains where the state played a leading role, and now we have companies actually coming to play a prominent, um, some would say more important role. And so in some ways, we, we do see a parallel with uh, an area, uh, w- with a time in the 18th century when states and companies overlapped in certain arenas like knowledge and we can learn from debates over what the proper roles of states and companies are when it comes to knowledge i I think there are a number of lessons we can draw from this um long and rich history of knowledge debates that the company the east india company was involved in one lesson i think is that while it's uh of of course natural and um, i would say correct to be skeptical about um commitments articulated by companies in the name of knowledge we might we might question the public spiritedness of a google or an amazon um critics of the company the east india company tended to have more success when they held the company up to the enlightened promises it had made rather than when they simply dismissed the possibility of its ever meeting them. Um, as a tactical matter, it seems more likely to uh, you know, reform these companies when it comes to their knowledge activities rather than try to get them out of the knowledge business altogether or dismiss the possibility of them playing any positive role. And um, I, I have this sense also because taking a long view, it's by no means the fact that states have always been seen as the natural caretakers of knowledge. Um, They've really come to be seen as the leaders of the knowledge order only since the 19th century at the earliest. Before that, um, you see companies among many other kinds of organizations playing these roles, and you see much more blurred lines when it comes to who should be educating, who should be patronizing scholars, who should be supporting research and publications. And it's by no means clear to me that states are always going to play this role in the future. Um, we may be entering an era when the roles of states and corporations, again, are in, are in flux. And so I, I think for those who care about knowledge and um, want knowledge to be a public good, it's, it's helpful to articulate those aims without dismissing the possibility of you know, multiple kinds of institutions and organizations contributing to them. I think that the future is unknown and so we, we can't take for granted uh, some, of, some of our assumptions when it comes to the leading role of, of states in, in these areas. Companies may also play these roles in the future and it's then important to articulate what we expect from them rather than dismiss the possibility that they can, uh, that they can contribute. So that's one big lesson I think we can take from this even broader, perhaps, is um, remembering that states, companies, and knowledge are all malleable categories. I, I-, I see this not as destabilizing or um, a dispiriting conclusion. I see this instead as um, empowering, let's say, because they can be remade. And so uh, corporate involvement with knowledge today can be um, seen in a negative light, but it can also be remade. Um, it might look like something very different in the future.
0: So I think with on that note, thank you for listening to my interview with Joshua Ehrlich, author of The East India Company and the Politics of Knowledge. Um, Josh, I do actually have two final questions for you uh, before you go, which are, um, first of all, where can people find your work? And two, uh, what's next for you? What do you think the next project might be? Well,
1: thanks very much, Nicholas. People can find my book on sale from all the usual places. Um, I believe that there are uh, good prices on a few sites online, or you can wait for the paperback or South Asia edition for a more affordable version than the original hardback. You can also find me published in a number of scholarly journals and uh, in a few more popular outlets as well. Um, Some pieces are coming out soon. I'm engaged at the moment on a number of small projects and and pushing towards the next big project, but uh, enjoying this moment to work on smaller things that come out more quickly. Um, A big book like the one I've just finished uh, takes perhaps a decade, and so it's, it's nice to have some smaller projects to work on in the meantime, and I have a backlog of these I'm still getting through. These are on subjects like the origins of print culture in South Asia, early Indian participation and involvement with print much earlier than scholars have thought, in fact, not in the 19th century, but as early as the mid 18th century. I'm writing a few articles about that. I'm working on other subjects like the collaborators with the British in South India and in in Sri Lanka, finding a lot of interesting stories there that I think uh, will, will generate some new directions in the field. And I have a big project that I'm working towards on the history of the Darbar as a political institution from its origins in ancient Persia to its proliferation and spread across the British empire in the 20th century. It eventually ranges from West Africa to the Malay States and I think is a, a key political institution for understanding the British Empire and for understanding even modern politics. So that might be the next big project. It's it's certainly what I'm working on and, and thinking about these days.
0: Well, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at NickRigordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to asianreviewbooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at BookReviewsAsia. That's if you use that's reviews, plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network and newbooksnetwork.com. We're on all of your podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those running in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for a conversation with Gregory J. Wallace, author of Into Siberia, George Kennan's epic journey to the brutal frozen heart of Russia. But before then, Josh, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks so much,
1: Nicholas.